0: Hello! Welcome to the Jack-Jack edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of what has been a pretty exciting week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. And we're going to talk about Jack-Jack. We're going to talk about specifically, we're going to compare and contrast, shall we say, the Jack of the moment. Mr. Dorsey of Twitter and Square versus the Jack of the 80s and 90s, Mr. Welch of General Electric. We are going to talk about Lebanon because we promised that we would. Thank and you. so Anna gets to talk about Lebanese Ponzi's, which are, you know, they used to be called cedars. Now they're called Ponzi's. And of course, we are going to talk about the Fed, the emergency rate cut that they did this week, what it has to do with coronavirus what the right response to coronavirus is, all of this coming up on Slate Money. So when was the last time we had an emergency rate cut? I feel like that was financial crisis, right? Correct.
2: 2008. For 50 basis points, yeah. Um,
0: and so these things are rare, and they're meant to panic the world, I guess, or something. They're
3: <laughs> not meant to panic.
0: <laughs> if you want if you want to really try and send a signal that don't worry, people, we have this under control and don't panic, then like a panicky rate cut in between meetings feels like the wrong message to send.
3: I agree. I mean, it was weird because you basically had before the rate cut, you all of a sudden had this kind, you had a jump in stock prices because there was an anticipation of a rate cut. However, when there was then this emergency rate cut that was not communicated clearly, then the markets fell. It was just another example of this particular Fed's poor communication skills.
0: Well, there's one market which isn't falling, which is The bond market, of course, which is soaring and hitting new highs. But that's not good news. That's a sign of pessimism and flight to quality and scaredness, to use a technical term. So we should back up
2: and we should say that the Fed did an emergency rate cut on Tuesday because it came off of this phone call with other um, leaders around the world, right? G7. G7 peeps. And it took action almost right away. It also was being pressured, of course, by Trump, who was tweeting about doing rate cuts. And, And then they did it. And then the market went bonkers, but it's been bonkers for a while. Yeah, the market, I think think
0: looking at the market, what the market did in like the 15 minutes after the rate cut or the day after the rate cut or the two days after the rate cut has limited utility because the market has just been bouncing around like a demented pogo stick for the past two weeks That's now. That's
3: true. But if you've looked at it in the number of past years, when we've had some type of issue and the market's been scared and then the Fed has come in with a cut, the market has responded pretty well. And granted, this is still early. It's possible that the markets will calm down. But I think the fact that it hasn't is kind of telling. And it's important because this rate cut doesn't seem like it can do an enormous amount to stop the damage potentially of the coronavirus.
2: Well, I mean, it's like, it's the whole like wrong tool scenario, right? right? Like, except it's a hammer, uh, but it's not a nail. Like, to contain this virus, you need to do public health stuff. So,
0: right. I had a big thing in my newsletter (laughs) this week saying the crisis is the coronavirus. The crisis is an epidemiological public health crisis. We do not have a financial crisis. And there is no financial crisis anywhere on the horizon, except for in Lebanon, which we're going to talk about later. And so the tools that you use to fight a financial crisis, which are all the kind of tools that we used back in 2008 with coordinated rate cuts between central banks and fiscal policy and all of that kind of stuff, have relatively limited utility. That said, the coronavirus is going to cause a macroeconomic slowdown. There is an OECD forecast for the first quarter of negative GDP growth since the crisis and like excluding the f- crisis since 1982. So this is a big deal, the coronavirus of the global economy. And if global central banks, including the Fed, do everything they can to mitigate the, e- the economic effects of coronavirus, that's fine. We just need to be very clear that all of this is secondary to the number one big priority, which is... Medical, well, Right. And, and also
3: the fiscal policy makes more sense. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay.
0: t- yeah. T- tell me whether $8 billion is remotely fiscal policy as a, as a, as a response. I mean,
2: so, right. Well, so the Congress is going to pass this $8 billion coronavirus emergency spending bill, but it's mostly focused on, and rightly so, medical spending, public health spending. But I think what a lot of economists were talking about this week was we sort of like hit the wall on monetary policy like the rate cu- rates are very low already this rate cut hasn't really isn't really going to do much what we need to finally do and recognize is that fiscal policy has to happen we have to do stuff to inject money into in the US we have to um, for example, we could do things like extend unemployment insurance and get it set up so that if st- people start losing their jobs, they have unemployment insurance. We can beef up food stamps. We can send out – this is what I wrote about today. We can send out checks, Not maybe just to sick people for starters, but then maybe to I, – I, I have an I mean, idea.
0: Why don't we send reimbursement checks to anyone who has any kind of medical risk expense associated with the Yes, You the can absolutely you can it's true. pay Although- for
2: everyone's coronavirus – related healthcare, you can assure people that if they're sick and they stay home, they will be reimbursed. That was where the check idea came from, because yeah. you could do paid sick leave. But for like tipped workers, for example, if they're paid, you know, if they're reimbursed just for the tipped hourly wage, it's like nothing. They're still missing tips. So maybe it's better to send to send the checks out. But if that- you
0: if you want people to continue to eat out at restaurants, those people need to have some assurance that the Kitchen workers aren't sick. Right. And in order to have that assurance, those kitchen workers do need to be able to stay home if they are sick. And in order for them to be able to stay home if they are sick, they need to somehow get paid if they're staying home. And we need a mechanism for doing that.
2: Exactly. Otherwise,
0: no one will eat out at restaurants.
2: That's when fiscal policy actually becomes... Public health policy because it's sort of bolstering, it's allowing people to stay home and and rest up and um, making it so that sick people don't go to work every day. It's really important, and
3: also because in th- even though right now this is would basically be a supply shock, there is the fear that there is going to be a demand shock as well, and then that. Okay, can't so ha-
0: can you please just because I'm a bearer of very little brain, okay. explain what the difference is between a supply shock? shock well, is, and is a the demand question
3: shock? that you have so one of the big fears with the coronavirus is that because you had all of these factories shut down in China that now all of these parts all of these goods that are needed aren't going to be available the supply is lower shock right so that's that's the shock so what is more likely that we see happening here is that we have this you know clear supply issue but then on the same time the panic and the Shutdowns and the quarantines is going to reduce demand. People aren't going to be using services. People aren't going to be shopping as much. So you're having a little bit of both. And so that's where what the Fed is doing in theory could make a little bit more sense with the idea of we want to continue to spur economic growth. Now, I just want to point this out though that there are downsides to what the Fed has done. Normally, when an economy is still doing relatively good, And we thus far don't have a lot of data for the United States to support the idea that things are falling apart.
0: In fact, just on Friday, we had an amazingly strong jobs report showing 250,000 people got new jobs. Um, That unemployment is at 3.5%. Like, this is all kind of before the coronavirus shock. But the fact is that the economy is about as healthy as it's ever been going into this shock.
3: Right. And so the fear is that if you do go into an actual recession, Normally, when you go into an actual recession, the Fed cuts a lot. You know, we don't have that much room to cut. The Fed has already said they don't want to go negative and they shouldn't go negative because as we've seen in other countries, Japan and Europe, it's not overly effective. And then you say, okay, what are their other tools? Well, they can do quantitative easing again. But okay, again, when rates are already so low... Okay, great. You're going to lower rates a tiny bit more on the far end, like longer dated bonds. It's not going to do much, and so the. But that's
0: not a reason not to cut rates. I feel like this is this argument that Larry Summers has been out making and being broadly ridiculed, ridiculed about. He's like, it's like the Fed only has two bullets left in its gun, (laughs) and now it's fired two of them, and it doesn't have any bullets left. And you should save bullets. And in fact, that's just like a really bizarre analogy because if lower rates are going to be good in like a couple of months time whenever he wants to hypothetically fire those bullets then if you lower rates now the the rates will be lower in a couple of rates time you it will you will have what you want and like it's better to lower the rates now and have even more effect he has this idea that it's not the lower Wait, what? rates. I don't so, get it. Okay, so uh, the
2: number is low. It can only go so much right. farther. Right. No, no, exactly. Zero. But the
0: quest the big question, is when when you cut rates, what makes the difference? Is it the fact that interest rates are lower, in which case you want them to be as low as possible for as long as possible, and you cut rates now, or is it the fact that you cut rates? Is it the actual like physical action of cutting rates that has some kind of salutary effect on the economy. And as we saw with this emergency rate cut, the physical action of cutting rates doesn't do very well. Well,
3: no, but I, I think looking at what we just saw and using that to say, to discount everything we've seen in the last few years, I'm not sure if I totally agree with that. I'm not saying I totally agree with Larry Summers. I'm not saying I 100% buy this argument. But what I am saying is that historically... I do think the the in recessions the Fed has cut a lot and that has indicated that the Fed has the ability to control what's happening. Now if you're getting to a point where the Fed basically can't cut and you're going into a recession, I do think that limits what the Fed can do. And on top of that, when you have rates extremely low, you're putting pressure on your banks. Very very low rates do not help banks. So I think there's this like idea. The last
0: people I'm worried about right now are the banks.
3: Okay, who makes loans? Who keeps the economy going? Who? I mean, I think.
0: But I don't. But bank loans aren't keeping the economy going. Like, well, then it, why are we cutting rates? Because that's that's. I didn't describe. I think
2: really what this is is a good thing because monetary policy isn't the only weapon in the arsenal. We have to go back. Right. Yeah, to fiscal I agree with that. And I think we learned in the last recession and the slow, agonizing, slow recovery was that there needs to be more fiscal stimulus. You need to help not just the banks, but the people. And that'll work. That's its own kind of stimulus. And yeah. I feel like the past decade, there's been this like push away from that and this 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 running towards austerity that really hasn't worked. So maybe the silver lining here is like, and, and this a lot depends on, right, the 2020 election, but like maybe the silver lining is we actually start doing more of that stuff and- and we solve some inequality issues that people were sort of like unwilling to deal with before. except
0: except i feel that everything you're saying on one level is right but on another level it's doing this thing that I, again, talked about a little bit in my newsletter, which is fighting the last war, that we're looking at this problem through the lens of how we fought the financial crisis, whether we did it the right way, whether we should have spent more on fiscal. And there is this general consensus, you know, ex post that we should have spent more on fiscal in 2009. But the fact is that that was a major financial crisis and financial crises have financial solutions. But- and the Epidemiological crisis has medical solutions. And while fiscal and monetary policy can be helpful at the margins, I think the one thing we can agree on is that honestly, the economic problems facing America, although they are potentially significant and it is possible that there could be a recession, pale in significance to the virus and medical problems. So let's concentrate on that.
2: Yeah, I agree no, with that. 100%. Yeah. But we need strong policies that help, like I said before, Americans stay healthy. Like, yes, yeah. the, fiscal, so that, the yeah, need for yeah, fiscal med- stimulus med- it is tied to, right, like looking behind and saying, oh, we should have done more in the recession. But it's also looking at like the uninsured population, the underinsured population, the percent of people who, again, like right. have to go to work. Like these so, yeah, is I, a I, really I, important I just, intersection.
0: You're absolutely right. And I just think that calling it fiscal stimulus is a little bit a weird way of framing it. But it's fiscal I th- policy. I mean, ca- just calling, by definition. it is, I'm it fine is, with
2: not calling. I don't care it about is, It things. is fisc- money spent from the... It is, like, no, by definition, it, fiscal policy.
0: No, it, is, it is fiscal policy. I'm just saying that, like, everything that a government spends money on is fiscal policy. But what we're really talking about here is public health policy. Yeah, mm-hmm. and,
2: and it's, it's like... It's a huge sign that, like, we need to return to the era of big government. Like, we need a strong... <laughs> government with good sound policies that can help us maneuver through public health crisis right
0: and 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 we need the, an effective
2: government i don't know if it has to be
0: yeah, big, but, but <laughs> yeah no it, it needs to be effective and it needs to be spending money in smart ways and i guess the reason why i recoil at calling this fiscal policy is because when people talk about fiscal stimulus they're like What's the size of the stimulus we need? And then they work out where to spend it. It's like, should we do tax cuts? Should we do more spending? That kind of thing. Like, here it's not like that. It's not like, let's start with the size of the stimulus and then work out where to do it. It's like, let's start with where do we need to spend money in order to keep Americans healthy and then spend that money. I feel we all agree. Okay.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Do you want to do Jack-Jack? Let's do Jack-Jack.
2: <laughs> After Bob-Bob. <laughs> Last week was Bob-Bob. This week, Jack-Jack.
0: Is Jack-Jack the name of the baby in The Incredibles?
2: Yes, the amazing baby in The Incredibles with superpowers and everything. The
0: amazing baby in The Incredibles is like an impossible human being. And I feel like Jack-Jack is another impossible and human being. Is that a good segue?
2: That's pretty good. But we should tell people what Jacks we're talking about.
0: Which Jacks are we talking about?
2: We're talking about Jack Welch, who died this week. He was the legendary CEO of General Electric. He was 84, I think. And um, Jack Dorsey, who is also somewhat legendary uh, CEO of not only Twitter, but also Square. And Jack Dorsey is in trouble.
0: And Jack Dorsey is has doubled the number of CEO ships that Jack Welch had. So obviously he's twice as CEO-ish.
2: He's much richer.
0: And is much richer. Um, Jack Welch, uh, again, I put this in my newsletter. I'm plugging my newsletter a lot this week. I don't know why. Um, Jack Welch got a severance package of $417 million. And then he got a divorce. And then in the divorce, it turned out he was getting like even more right. stuff that no one ever knew a about. Plane. Like two and a half million dollars worth a year of just random perks for being retired. And everyone was like, oh my God, this guy is so rich and paid so ridiculously lavishly. And this is capitalism gone bazonkas. And <laughs> in comparison to Jack Dorsey, the guy was a
2: pauper. Yeah, I feel sorry for him now. In <laughs> retrospect.
3: <laughs> well, and it's interesting because I I think that jack welch in a lot of ways started this kind of
0: cult of the ceo
3: N- not entirely but i think he was a big player and
0: he was de- he he definitely was part of it and there's a few others i think like like lee Iacocca. Yeah, yeah, yeah but like but he what he did was he was the guy who started the cult of the ceo and really um made it the same as the cult of the rising stock price
3: and shareholder value yeah and, and because if you look at what the ge share price did when he was in office you'd be like great. (laughs) Of course, then when you look at what it's done since then, and it's not just that you've had 9-11 in the financial crisis, it was also that a lot of the things that Welch did in terms of GE capital, you know, and just expanding the footprint of GE into areas where it did not have a competitive advantage was shown to not actually be very smart.
0: So what Welch did was financial engineering. Lots of it. Uh, Lots and lots of financial engineering. There was the obvious financial engineering, which everyone knows about, which was that he would engineer the profits every quarter. So they would, they would beat expectations every quarter and the price would of the stock would go up every quarter because everyone would go, oh my God, you made even more money this quarter than we thought you would. And so he was very good about that, like expectations management and earnings management. The other piece of it, financial engineering he did, though, was the the way he did that and the way that he got the growth and the way that he got the earnings was by um, turning around and realizing that General Electric is this huge industrial company with massive cash flows, had this incredibly valuable thing, which was a AAA credit rating. And he's like, shouldn't let that AAA credit rating go to waste. And so he became a bank, basically. He became a lender, and he started lending out and borrowing huge amounts of money. Using his AAA credit rating meant that he could borrow at cheaper rates than even like JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or anyone like that. So he had a comparative advantage in that sense, in that his funding costs were super low to borrow money. And then he would turn around and lend that money, just like banks do. And so he wound up massively leveraging General Electric and That leverage and those liabilities that he took on by borrowing so much money um, really whacked the company over the head with a two by four in the financial crisis when it lost its AAA credit rating and it couldn't roll over its debts and it needed a bailout from the federal government.
2: Yeah, and the, the reason I find Jack Welch interesting is less the financial engineering and more his like management style. Oh my god, which he was celebrated for, but um, he did let's things like let's
0: fire lots of people,
2: rank and yank. Right, yeah. where you would rank and rate all of the workers in the company and then cull the bottom 10%. Like,
0: literally fire them. Literally
2: fire them. And even
0: when the company was growing, like, he got this Neutron Jack nickname from, like, firing 100,000 people when he came in, where, like, the buildings were still standing, but But all of the people were, like, vaporized. Yes. But even after that, every single year, in good years and in better years, he would still fire 10% of the workforce. And this
2: method was lauded people thought this was really smart and other companies followed suit and and i think it, it was in vogue for a really long time and only it hasn't recently gone away. i yeah. mean a lot more companies now i think recognize that you don't want to have a culture so of fear and bullying i just and aggression. i just
0: got sent in the mail the upcoming book by reed hastings the ceo of netflix who basically does oh yeah thing. netflix yeah. is bad too.
2: that no. they have this whole like um they'll fire low performers but they think they do it really nicely so it's okay and it's like good for everybody because if you're not fitting in then you gotta go but yeah or it's like, the same or I was
0: thinking also um, Ray Dalio and the whole Bridgewater thing he yes. fires like people all right. but the I, time and and I think so it's I,
2: generally recognized now that th- this is not good strategy I think a lot more companies and we can talk about Twitter. Yes. I, I don't I think Twitter so, is very much the opposite. Yeah, that's how, oh, she feels. Well, yeah, I mean, I will
3: say that there there have been a number of studies that have now shown that that type of like competition within a company really decreases productivity.
2: I've, I mean, yes. The John one Phil's thing, though, like, I not my, my, can is, I just say
3: this, one yeah. thing, though, that like okay. the in Jack Welch's defense a little bit, what you saw with a lot of these 80s CEOs was that they were responding to some genuine big problems that you had in the 70s, that there was a reason that the US economy kind of tanked as it did. And some of those were external, but some of those were because a lot of companies had become very uncompetitive. CEOs were only thinking in their own interest and not in the interest of shareholders. And so I do think that there are parts of what he was thinking to do that weren't a bad idea. It was just, I would argue, how he did it and the excesses of what he did that were the problem. But the
0: problem of the if we look back at the 70s, we're like, oh my God, there were all of these huge inefficient conglomerates. And then what does Jack Welch do? He creates a... He's, he buys like NBC. It, he wasn't makes just, it wasn't inefficient just conglomerate. inefficient
3: conglomerates. I mean, it was part of the reason that the... We don't have to go into too much of this, this. will be the last thing I say. But part of the reason that the US economy was not as competitive in the 70s was because you had companies in other countries, particularly Germany and Japan, that their companies were leaner and the US companies could not compete. That was a problem. That was why things did need to change. Isn't
2: that what the whole... I mean... The auto industry. That was the shining example, right?
0: Right. So, in any case, what we now have in this enlightened fist passer meditation, <laughs> um, goopy, you know, 21st century era is Jack Dorsey who, you know, walks. 15 miles a day and is very thin because he never eats anything. And he manages to run two companies essentially in his spare time while trying to become, you know, a- achieve some kind of nirvana. And, 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 and
3: he's going to understand Africa.
0: And, wow. and, and Well, he's not anymore. He has now come out um, because he's in the middle of a shareholder proxy war with our good friends at Elliott Associates. Um, he has now announced that he is no longer going to spend six months of the year in Africa. He is, in fact, going to stay put in California, still running two companies. We will see whether Elliot manages to oust him from Twitter or not. But the thing that a lot of people haven't really picked up on, I think, is that Elliot is trying to oust him as CEO of Twitter. They don't care about him as CEO of Square, where he is, by definition, just as stretched and doing just as little work as he is at Twitter because the square share price is doing just fine. And so long as the share price is doing just fine, you can be a touchy-feely absentee CEO and no one cares.
2: I, I've been thinking a lot about this. And like Elliot Management definitely, they have a point, right? Like Twitter is finally turning a profit now, but like compared to Facebook, it's just not as big. It's not growing as fast. It's not as innovative. Like, it's still the same old Twitter, more or less. But like, that's kind of fine. No, it's not.
3: I'm sorry. <laughs> I am on Team Elliot on this one. Like that, this company is not being run well. Like if you look at how the share price has performed in relation to other companies, and I know we'll say, oh, the share price doesn't matter. No, it does because it re- it represents the fact that like as Emily, like, you're even just admitting this company is not innovating. If a company companies, there is no stasis. You either grow or you decline. This company is not getting better. J- it, okay, so not it performing is growing.
0: As, Twitter is growing, but it the rate growing. of growth is not increasing. That's the, the, fine. The gro- we, we Twitter don't... is Twitter is growing actually very healthily. It is its profits and its revenues have been going up strongly yeah. under Dorsey, much more than they were under previous um... CEOs. The only thing that isn't going up is the share price. Everything else is up and to the right.
2: And honestly, like, why do we want a really high growth social network? Like, for, yeah, for we all of Twitter's fault and all the takeover by bots in sixteen, like, you cannot. Argue These with me that Facebook companies. was Facebook was way worse. Like, let's just let Twitter kind of like be Twitter. Like, we don't need some like un- we don't need another monster social network doing crazy stuff to grow and get more exactly. Users. And the, like, what just one of let the arguments, and then that, it'll die. Uh, no, Fine, no, but it, no won't. it won't. But wait, wait hang why? on a second But but
0: um, but Anna, <laughs> we have had this conversation many times on on Slate Money, and we're just going to have it very briefly one more time. <sighs> Twitter is profitable. It is making good, healthy amounts of money. Let's assume that it remains at current levels of profitability and has no growth at all. And it is growing, but like, let's assume worst case scenario that it has no growth at all. It will retain those healthy levels of profitability in perpetuity. That isn't the same as Dying now. How's it going to fund th- itself? It might. It doesn't need to fund itself because it's making money. It's profitable. So it's just
3: going to be using its cash that it's generating. And let's just say it has not and, historically been very profitable. But and it is gonna... now.
0: Let's. <laughs> I'm, saying, I'm saying. I'm saying. I'm saying it is profitable now. Let's assume that it remains profitable at current levels, which is a good amount of profitability in perpetuity. It no longer needs to fund itself. It can send those profits out to shareholders if it wants as dividends. It can keep on going just fine. It does not die.
3: No, I'm I'm sorry. I, I just, I disagree <laughs> with this. I think that like it is a, so number one, this is a growth company.
0: Okay, so, number one, I don't even know what that means, but I'm just saying let's assume that it isn't. Let's assume that it stops growing. Fine. Why is that bad?
3: Well, it's equity value will then decline significantly.
0: Yes, so, so we, we are, let's assume that the stock price goes down. Why is that bad?
3: Okay, so then if it needs to, I don't know, Acquire another company. How's it gonna do that?
0: It doesn't either. That's what I'm saying. It's just gonna make lots of money in perpetuity. Why is that bad? So
3: all of its competitors are gonna be able to keep innovating, they're gonna be able to acquire, they're gonna be able to get better talent, and then you're gonna have this company that apparently like its equity value is gonna decline, its ability to raise debt is going to be lower. So it, 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 yet it apparently is going to still get the same amount of profits, which I'm not exactly sure how that's going to happen. All its other competitors are going to be able to do all the things that normal companies that are growing quickly do, and yet it's going to do just fine and dandy. I would say history suggests that that is not going to
2: happen. I think it'll be fine and dandy, and you just need to let Twitter be Twitter. It's sort of, it's my favorite social network. and, and don't mess, It's the Gen X like, thing. Evil, We're going to be around for a long time.
0: In. You millennials wouldn't understand.
2: We don't need Twitter to be that much better because then it becomes like Big Brother, it becomes Facebooky and no one wants that. We need Twitter to be a little more like kind of like low rent and like maybe we DIY, need a touchy feely you know? CEO
0: who does this passive meditation. I
2: think all CEOs should work part-time, honestly. Like we don't need them obsessing about growth that much. That is what I think.
3: Hello, I'm Immy Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story
0: of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, at my computer. And I, I got people fracturing me. I got this and that. But I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we promised this to you last week. And for those of you who are ready for the Anna Shamansky nerd out about Lebanon, I can tell you that um, earlier this week, Anna and I spent two hours listening to a lecture by the one and only Lee Bukite, who was a previous guest on, on Slate Money. And he was addressing a bunch of very sophisticated law students about sovereign debt things and so I'm just going to remind Anna here that she is not talking to the very sophisticated <laughs> law students. And you're going to have to pitch this at about four notches below where Lee was. Okay. okay.
2: I'm going to interrupt you whenever I stop understanding. Fine.
3: Fine. Okay. So right now, what you have in Lebanon is a banking crisis and a general economic crisis. Now, this has been going on for a while. It really started to kind of come to a head last fall. This was around the same time when you started to see a lot of protests, right? Okay, this is all related because Lebanon is the third most indebted country in the world. Their debt to GDP is between 140, 150% of GDP. Okay? Why do they have such a big deal? debt burden? Well, the reason they do is because they have massive, what we call twin deficits, which means they have big fiscal deficit. So they're not bringing in as much revenue as they're spending. And they have a big current account deficit, which means that they are importing a lot more than they're exporting. So consequently, they need to raise money to keep all these things funded, right? So how have they been doing that? On the debt markets. Okay. So who's been buying all this debt? Well, a lot of this debt has actually been bought by the Central Bank of Lebanon, and private banks in Lebanon, and then some foreign creditors. Okay? makes sense all right now? Okay. Now, the way that the both the Central Bank and the, especially the private banks were able to keep buying all this debt to keep this economy going was because they had deposit inflows. Now, where were the deposit inflows coming from? Well, you have a large Lebanese kind of diaspora that also was often wealthy that were sending money. And then on top of that, you also had money coming in from Gulf countries around because the Lebanese bank, you could get higher rates of interest. There was a lot of bank secrecy. People wanted to put their money there. So wait, wait, I have uh, a
2: question, actually. the For the people, the diaspora sending the money, what does that mean? Who they're, they're, they're putting put, it for, in the they're putting what, their money in Lebanese banks. Okay. What,
0: what this means Why? is that let's say that I'm a very rich Lebanese person. Let's say I'm Carlos Ghosn or I'm like <laughs> Nassim Taleb or someone like that. And I feel a sense of loyalty to my homeland. And the Lebanese bank comes along to me and says... I will offer you a US dollar bank account paying interest of 7%. Oh, I understand. And I'm like, oh, well, now, <laughs> I get, now I get to kill two birds with one stone. Number one, I get to support my homeland. And number two, I get way higher interest than I do putting it in with like JP Morgan. And more bank secrecy. And also no one will ever find out that my, I have all of this money there because the Lebanese um, central bank won't force the banks to tell the IRS. So this is where... Um, Anna, you start using the word Ponzi?
3: Yes. This is why I described it as a Ponzi scheme, because so much of Lebanon's economy is their banking sector and just like ginning up growth through loans for the construction and real estate. And so it, the whole thing only works from the government to the, the economy. It only works because you have these dollar inflows coming in. Now, what had started to happen, honestly, a while ago was these started declining. Now, a big You le- mean
0: dollar inflows can't just go up indefinitely forever? No. Not, oh, wow, okay.
3: Well, well, like, well, here's the problem because if they don't, everything falls apart.
0: You see, this is why I think that you think that Twitter is like Lebanon.
3: I do not <laughs> think Twitter is like <laughs> Lebanon. Um, so, okay. So basically, one of the things you'd have been happening is that Hezbollah which is kind of a proxy of Iran, have been gaining more and more power in Lebanon. And consequently, a lot of Gulf countries aren't super excited to send their money to a country that is increasingly being run by Lebanon or being run by Hezbollah, right? So that was one thing that started to kind of reduce this this flow of dollars in. So then what happened was, and I won't go into all the details here because Felix won't let me, but-
0: <laughs> I'm very mean.
3: There was another form of What is actually called financial engineering, which if you go onto Lebanon's central bank website, they will somewhat show you what they're doing. But they did all of these various swaps. And the reason they did all of these various swaps was basically to make it appear that the central bank had a larger stash of dollars. And that's important because the Le- Lebanon has a pegged currency. So their currency is kept at a certain rate in relation to the dollar. The only way you can do that is if you have dollars to support that in the currency market.
0: So it's called the Lebanese pound. And I'm old enough to remember when the pound was a pegged currency. In the UK, we pegged the um, pound to the ECU, as it was then, the, the precursor to the euro. And then famously, George Soros made a big bet against the pound and the Bank of England had all of these foreign currency re- reserves and was trying to support the pound until eventually he, it, they gave up and the pound crashed because pegged currencies have a tendency to crash when a lot of people are betting against them. And this is basically exactly the same thing. Instead of the British pound, we're now talking about the Lebanese pound. Right. It is pegged against the US dollar. And If there's two things that seem inevitable at this point, um, one is that Lebanon is going to default on a bunch of its debts, and another one is that the pound is going to get devalued against the dollar. It all feels a lot in some way like Greece back in 2011, people were like, will they devalue? Will they default? In the end, Greece did default, but they didn't devalue. Lebanon, I'm going to come out and say it's going to do both.
3: Probably. It is super complicated. I mean, this is even, I would would argue this is one of the most complicated kind of default restructurings that we've seen since probably something like Iraq for a number of reasons. One, because... Because of all of this financial engineering, one of the big results of that is that a lot of the dollar deposits from the private banking sector are at the central bank. And so what this means is that, and, and also, sorry, and also the private banking sector owns a lot of the debt that was issued by the central government. So, so,
0: so if, then we've seen this multiple times with sovereign defaults, it, it means that if the government defaults, and it, if it doesn't pay its debts the main bondholders who get hurt are the domestic banks. And then that just makes the domestic banks insolvent. So the government needs to bail out the banks, but it doesn't have any money to bail out the banks. And so you have this combination banking crisis and sovereign debt crisis. They often go together, but in Lebanon, they're even closer than they normally are.
3: And it's 100% correct, and it's but it's almost a little bit worse because... You have all of these dollar deposits that were being held at the central bank to make it appear, basically, that they had more reserves. But that means if you actually look at the numbers, the country doesn't have enough dollars to fund all of those deposits.
2: So they could have a bank run? Yes. yes. And
3: they actually they have right now de facto capital controls to stop that from happening because – they just simply don't have enough dollars. That is their problem. More than honestly, their debt itself, it's the fact that they do not have enough dollars. So what they're probably going to do, I would argue, is that they're going to do some type of swaps with the local banks, where they'll say, okay, we're going to take your debt that's kind of going to mature soon, and we're going to swap that with that that's going to mature further along in the future. We're going to lower the coupon, the interest rate, and that can buy them a little bit of time.
0: They're going to kick the can down the road because this is the first thing that countries right. always do. But I want to get back to where you started mm-hmm. which was the demonstrations on the street what what are people well, demonstrating about so
3: what kind of sparked it was actually a whatsapp tax so because as i mentioned lebanon has this not sh- a tweet
0: <laughs> not a twitter yeah then the <coughs> would be like <laughs> turkey <laughs> turkey is all about twitter lebanon it's all about whatsapp
3: mm-hmm. yeah so because lebanon has this like massive fiscal deficit trying to find ways to close that. And instead of like, I don't know, cutting down on the massive corruption of the government, they're like, let's tax people for WhatsApp messages. And so unsurprisingly, this really angered people. But I I think it's important that it wasn't just the WhatsApp messages. This is decades and decades of misrule of lack of social services being given to the population while you have this governing elite that is just wasting all of this money and living lavishly while most people are suffering.
0: Especially the bankers. If you thought there was a bunch of anger in america at bankers circuit occupy like multiply that by a hundred the bankers in lebanon have just been you know basically what they've been doing is they've been borrowing money from the government at two percent lending it out at nine percent it's been the easiest cash generating game in the world and they've been paying themselves hundreds of millions of dollars in dividends these this is like personal income these the big bankers in in lebanon and as Anna said, um, Lebanon is basically an offshore banking center more than it is than anything else, have made billions of dollars. And they have done nothing really to improve the health of the country. And this
3: is all by design from the government. All of that activity that we're talking about in the banking sector is directly what the central government wanted. So now we're in a situation right now where unfortunately, no matter what happens, the population is going to end up Screwed because if you, what is almost certainly going to happen is that the pound is going to be devalued. It's already on a parallel exchange rate, trading at like 40% less than where it technically is. So people who are regularly just holding Lebanese pounds, all of a sudden now they have a lot less money. And then on top of that, this is an unsustainable system. At some point, this has to collapse. You're going to need to have reforms. And unfortunately, part of those are going to be like cutting the massive electricity subsidies that they can't afford, which are like 3% of GDP. I mean, this has been another problem is that Lebanon has had the opportunity to get money in. I think France actually put together this like big pot of money from a, different, a bunch of different countries that technically Lebanon could have used. But in order to use it, they would have had to put through
2: reforms. They didn't want to do it. Mm. And then now this issue of Hezbollah so ah, trust is the IMF or something. This is important, too, because normally in this situation, too, you'd say like, well, this
3: sounds like a job for the IMF. Right. Um, but the problem here is that, again, right now you also recently had another um, election where the governing coalition is now run by Hezbollah and its allies. And so The idea that the IMF is going to give a massive loan to a government where the governing coalition is run by Hezbollah, that seems somewhat unlikely. And then on top of that, you have representatives from Hezbollah saying, we don't want the IMF to tell us what to do. And if you think about it, this government, when you already have people on the street protesting, doesn't especially want to start going through and putting through austerity measures, which they would have to do, at least somewhat. And so there are simply no good options what will probably happen is this delaying, which will only make things worse. It's even possible that they will pay out some of their foreign creditors because they technically have the liquidity. If they really wanted to, they could muddle through for like another year. But they shouldn't do that. That's just a waste of money. But they they may very well do that. And the longer they do it, just the worse the situation is going to get. Because if you think about it, like what incentive, like this system only runs if you have dollar inflows. Who's sending their dollars to Lebanon now, right? Like,
0: and so, but I mean, Carlos Ghosn is, is going I out of the
2: Carlos Ghosn, can Carlos Ghosn save Lebanon? So, yeah, so it's actually sadly interesting. Even he.
0: People are there's a there's a whole like popular movement in Beirut right now mm-hmm. saying Carlos Ghosn for finance minister, and he's like, no fucking way.
2: <laughs> I mean, he rescued some car companies. Why not a country? Yeah,
0: right. I think it's time for numbers round. Why don't I start this week because I have one right here which is 1.4 million pounds. Not not Lebanese pounds. (laughs) This is British pounds, not Lebanese pounds. As we know, the British government is trying very hard to start building relationships with countries and rich people around the world because it's now cut itself off from the European Union and it needs to try and get a bunch of investment and it needs to try and get a bunch of relationships going and reinvent itself somehow. No one really thinks this is going to be very easy or even possible, but they're trying at least a little bit. And so one of the things they do is they are setting up meetings with rich people around the world and saying, hey, you should come and invest in Britain. If you're a government, how do you think you would set up those meetings?
2: What do you mean? I would,
0: you would get, have, some some have
2: some people, call some people. You would have some people, call some people, and then you would have the meetings. Sure. And, you,
0: and they, No. If you're the British government... <laughs> what you do is you pay this company called quintessentially £1.4 million pounds to set up the meetings. Quintessentially, I would done it for much less. <laughs> quintessentially being this company that was founded by some toff who went to Eton and knows a bunch of rich people. And he's like, I can introduce you to rich people. And like, he's like, I've had dinner at Buckingham Palace, and I'm related to Camilla Parker Bowles. And they were like, oh, wow, you're very special. Here, have 1.4 million pounds, and you can set up the meetings for us. That's,
2: That's an incredible scam.
0: Britain for you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. This is all in an amazing FT article about quintessentially, which everyone should read if they have any um, belief that Britain is not actually functioning country.
2: It's better than Lebanon. It is so better than what, Lebanon. So that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> My number is nine. That's the number of states that have passed measures to stay on daylight savings time because um, Sunday morning, very early, we all have to spring ahead, as we know. There's a very nice piece in the Wall Street Journal detailing all the problems that occur when you set your clocks ahead. And I personally, really dislike it i feel it like is horrible it is everyone horrible.
0: i know hates it i
2: just got a notification from my fitbit congratulating me on sticking to the same bedtime every night and my circadian rhythm is like really fine tuned yes and now along comes this daylight savings time which no one wants and and it's going to mess me up and apparently I mean, it's kind of sketchy. Well, I mean, Anna wouldn't like the studies, but I'm going to bring them up. Some studies say that there's more heart attacks and strokes right after the clocks spring ahead. Um, some people say well, it's, really, it's also really really when bad for they your fall health.
0: back. Let's just be clear about this: the daylight <laughs> there are just savings a lot of heart attacks
3: all the time. The <laughs> no.
0: daylight, the daylight savings time is the problem. Like, yes, we should never have fallen back in the first place. We should be on summertime all year round. I
2: think we should be on standard time all year round. And the health experts, Felix, according to the article in the Wall Street Journal, they agree with me.
0: No, the health experts (laughs) agree with me. (laughs) And I'm going going to push back hard on this one. The the health experts are saying the one thing you shouldn't do is vacillate backwards and forwards. Don't
2: vacillate. Correct.
0: Changing the clocks is bad. Yes. So don't change the clocks. Right. But if you're not going to change the clocks... Can we please have daylight at four p m in the winter? Come on,
2: I mean no, we can yeah, stay on standard time and but like why
0: what what is the reason why standard time is better than having daylight at four p m
2: um because if you have daylight at 4pm then it's like really dark in the morning and all the kids walking to school will get hit by buses. They never. Stuff. This is this
3: is like the razor blades and the you know Halloween candy. It's, it's such a myth. It's never happened. They're
0: going <laughs> like, to get hit by the buses. Never happens. No I, one gets hit by buses.
2: I think we should never spring ahead again. We should never lose that hour again and we should just stick to the way it is. It's darker in the winter, deal with it. Get a lamp and it's it, there's more daylight in the summer. It's fine. So I'll be depressed. Yeah, we'll get hit by a bus.
0: <laughs> and what's your number? <laughs> My
3: number is actually also nine. Um, it's nine inches, so that is the size of Joe Burrow's hand. So
0: is—is is this a sports what? ball thing? It is. Yes, hmm. he's
3: a LSU quarterback who's almost certainly going to go number one in the draft. What, what, what Wait, am I measuring? Like, like from
0: fingertip to thumbtip? I tip? think so. Like so. That, what's the, that in sand? octaves?
3: <laughs> that's so, big, right? It, well, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not that's big. the problem. So apparently, oh, that's small. Well, so there's this (laughs) tell us there there was this controversy at the at the Combine, which is this thing where um, players that are gonna go in the draft like do they get measured and they run basically track and field events to impress NFL scouts. It's stupid, but so they measured his hand and people are like, oh my god, it's only nine inches. Because there's become this like weird idea that for to be a good quarterback, your hand needs to be closer to 10 inches. This makes absolutely no sense. The theory
2: behind it is that, like, you will fumble the ball more, which, like, it, it it's completely... Quarterbacks have enormous hands, though. This is, like, one of those things I fixate on when we watch football because the rest is kind of boring to me. But, like, the announcers always are talking and, and gesturing with their hands, and their hands are, like... He's just a well, they're large enormous men. paddles. I mean, right. it is it is
3: true that like they're big and so their hands are big as mm-hmm. well. But this idea that it needs to be closer to 10 inches and that somehow if it's <laughs> nine inches, because Patrick Mahomes, who was the Super Bowl MVP, uh-huh. his hand is like nine and a quarters. Uh-huh. So this idea is silly. And can I just say, because this was my favorite part, was the tweet from uh, Joe Burrow, which was, Considering retirement after I was informed, the football will be slipping out of my tiny hands. Keep me in your thoughts. <laughs>
2: See, that was on Twitter. Again, a valuable yeah. <laughs> source of information and entertainment. But
0: this now explains everything. It explains why Donald Trump is so not unsporty. It's because it's he true. has such small hands.
3: <laughs> the ball is falling out of his tiny hands.
0: On which bizarre note. I think we're just <laughs> going to wrap this one up. <laughs> um, thank you very much for sticking with this episode of Slate Money thank you to and Molly for producing thank you for keeping the emails coming on SlateMoney at Slate.com and thanks especially to Aunt Millie who's been giving me all manner of smiles and enjoyment throughout <laughs> this entire episode she's in the studio today
2: my Aunt Millie and my cousin Esther are both here they live in Brooklyn and have been promising to come for a while so
1: welcome
0: On which note, um, we will wrap this up and come back with more Slate Money next week.